Welcome to Coffee with Connections, powered by Centurion Wealth Management. I'm your host, Cooper Zimmerman, the Director of Communications here at Centurion. We're a fiduciary financial planning firm based out of McLean, Virginia. In this podcast, well, this is an exploration of ideas, insights from high-performance professionals, and commentary on all things investing, business, and entrepreneurship. But it's important to remember that this podcast is not investment advice. This series is purely educational and for entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to consult a professional before making any financial decisions. Now, let's get to this week's interview. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Coffee with Connections. Uh, We have a great guest this week, Nick Nielsen, CFP. Uh, I found Nick on LinkedIn. Uh, Those that know me know I, uh, you know, I'm just so bullish on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is the uh, super highway of professional uh, branding and connections and further furthering your industry knowledge. Uh, And that's exactly how I met Nick. I've never met Nick in person. And we kind of speak about the fact that there's this growing community of financial advisors on LinkedIn. And it's one that uh, in it educates other advisors. It builds a sense of like camaraderie. And Nick does awesome illustrations online and just really just educates the the world, the marketplace on principles of financial planning. And we jump on and talk about that. And uh, I thought this episode was pretty neat um, because also, if you know me, you know, I'm, I tend to kind of gravitate towards the same core subjects. Um, I like to think very holistically about retirement. I like to view it from, you know, a 500 year, you know, history level, if you will. And I like to think about psychology and, you know, pop culture and then just trends and then also the nitty-gritty technical aspect of financial planning and money and psychology and all this good stuff so we jump into baseball cards you know rolexes crypto kevin costner (laughs) quotes um the industrial revolution all the whole idea here is to think about how do we talk about money what's important about retirement and wealth creation and why we think working with uh fiduciary financial planners makes a lot of sense for most people uh throughout their life in order to have their financial affairs in order in order to maximize their wealth in order to take care of their family uh to be able to retire and whatnot so this episode kind of dives into all of that uh nick was very gracious with his time he tells stories uh you can find out more about nick uh you can connect with him on linkedin uh if you're listening to this you can probably just go to our profile you'll see me posting uh, recently about it but you can also go to knowmyplan.com that's where nick lives uh this is his website he didn't live there but that's where his website lives and um good stuff so it's, it's a great episode um here on coffee with connections it's of course powered by centurion wealth management a fiduciary independent boutique firm in mclean virginia but we serve clients uh truly all over the world certainly in the united states we have some clients abroad but uh you know we do comprehensive retirement planning and you're listening to this because you're somehow interested in that or you found it on linkedin or you follow centurion so i appreciate you listening as always but uh i'll quit yapping and let's just get to this week's interview with nick nelson What's up, Nick? What's going on, man? How are you? Cooper, great to spend some time with you today. Looking forward to it. 
Likewise, man. I mean, uh, we were just talking, uh, and it seems like we're talking, you know, we're talking COVID, we're talking Zoom life, and we're, we're talking, uh, we didn't get to LinkedIn, but that's where we, you know, we know each other from. I think I, I don't remember when I got connected with you, uh, but something that, that caught my interest was just the educational pieces that you put on there. Your, I call it like data visualization um in a, in a way of just portraying the industry that we're in the financial services industry trying to at its core it seems like boil down complex topics and make them understandable and easy and, and bite-sized in a way um so i'm glad to have you on man it's been a i've been a big fan of your work hey cooper i, I really appreciate it and uh, sometimes you take for granted that we've never met in person but <laughs> after being connected for a few years on linkedin you know I kind of feel like I've known you all my life and I grew up in the Midwest and small town in Southern Indiana. I know you for, you're from West Virginia. So you just kind of seem like the guy that I've known my whole life. And one of these days we'll, uh, we'll do this in person. It is true, man. You start like, there's a couple of people that I know, you know, specifically within our industry that, you know, it just felt like there was a wave of, like we were saying with, with the pandemic, it kind of shook up a lot of advisors practice and a lot of folks, uh, you know, I think put it in overdrive, their LinkedIn kind of marketing, but just having a presence in order to build business and hopefully help more families. Um, and it's kind of been cool to kind of see the growth of everybody, kind of the different lane they've taken. And we'll, we'll dive into LinkedIn specifically because I want to get into some some cool technical stuff. I think a lot of advisors would still benefit from kind of going that down that road. But I always like to start with growing up, man. I and mean, you said you're from small town you know, I think different walks of life, different people, different backgrounds end up in the financial services industry. Some people even, you know, from the military, their, their active service draw them to the industry. Some people are just, you know, chartists. They love diving into Excel sheets and tracking the market. And then they realize they can, you know, help people by using those skills. But what's kind of your story growing up? Was, was this in mind or was this kind of just, did it come up? How did this come about basically? Yeah, I mean, growing up, the two things that I wanted to do, I either wanted to be a professional uh, baseball pitcher or I wanted to be a junior college basketball coach. Like those were the two <laughs> things, you know, from a small age that I wanted to do. I had uh, a couple of elbow surgeries that kind of ended the the baseball dreams and aspirations. And um, I, I've become a huge just junior college basketball fan. So I've kind of, um, you know, cure that itch for that. I have a lot of friends who are junior college basketball coaches and I kind of get to live vicariously through them. But um, I love math growing up. I love chemistry. I started off in college as a chemical engineering major and I just geeked out on the math. I loved it. I would have taken calculus classes as electives as, as much as I could. Um, but I really just didn't enjoy the chemistry labs. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was always trying to like make deals with people like, Hey, I'll do the Kim lab work. If you'll just do the lab, I don't even want to be there, but I'll do all the homework. Um, and, you know, really through some divine intervention around this period of time, my, my grandfather, who was a retired uh, welder with Texaco, which became Chevron, um, he had accumulated a decent amount of investments and he didn't understand his investments. Um, he had a broker who just kind of sold him things, kind of like the old, um, the old way of doing things back in the day. And he just kind of wanted to understand what he owned, why he owned it, and kind of how it all fit into his financial picture. And that um, really just kind of awoken a curiosity within me that I didn't previously know that existed. Um, switched to a business major after that, still took my calculus classes at electives for fun. And, you know, kind of at that point, I knew that I wanted to be a financial advisor, financial planner. 
And um, just that that journey began. I started off as a bank teller, first job out okay. of college, and eleven dollars and fifty four cents an hour. Ended up in in management, kind of going through some roles there. Ended up as a licensed banker. And um, that best thing that ever happened to me was just being in the bank, getting to meet with, you know, dozens of people every day, and giving me those at bats. That's really hard for young people to get in this industry. It is, man. And it's uh, it's something that I have pondered quite a bit because in, in terms of how like the industry, I think, is it's very gray and it's not it's not black and white because a lot of the you know different positions use it like you might work at a bank and this is no shade to people that work in the front office of a bank, but your title might be like wealth, like management, like specialist or wealth advisor or something. And to the general public, that kind of feels like that would be somebody who would take you on a, a comprehensive plan. Like, oh, they must be a wealth advisor. And it, But then you kind of look under the hood and people that are in the industry kind of know, you know, either by certifications or by licensing. If you have a 66 and a seven and you're a CFP, you kind of understand like where they're at in the industry versus somebody who doesn't have that at all. And maybe they only have insurance licenses. Is that a problem in the industry? And like, how do we, like, who is, who's that on to help clarify to the public like you went through a progression and ultimately now you're a cfp and you you know you do full-on financial planning but i don't know man like who is that on to clarify for the general public because i still feel like it's not easy for you know them to under like to know who to go to and what exactly they can do for them and their finances yeah it's a fantastic question i think that's uh, a question that regulators wrestle around with um all the time. And I, I think it's really hard uh, for a consumer to make an informed decision just because advisors fight with each other, right. you know, so much on, on things that, you know, you can never get, you know, a collective group of advisors to agree upon, like, what is a fiduciary? Mm -hmm. um, we all, I would say, I, I believe that the vast majority of us believe that we're acting in the best interest of a client. Mm -hmm. you know, that question of, you know, are you a fiduciary? Have you met anyone who said no to that question? Right. right. You know, yeah. You know, everybody answers that question the same way. And um, it has different meaning kind of with, um, you know, how you affiliate within the industry. So it's, it's super challenging. Um, I think advisors have made it like a hundred X worse for a consumer to make an educated decision just because there's so much, fighting. And I think they're, no matter how you affiliate or how you charge fees, like there's, there's so many people out there who just need advice and guidance that there's enough for all of us. Right. And right. I just kind of have that abundance mentality. Like there's some people that want to pay a flat fee. That's awesome. There's wonderful flat fee advisors. There's people that just want to pay an hourly fee. That's great. There's awesome people that do that. There's people who want a one-time plan. Great. You know, there's literally um, enough people to fill everybody's business model. Um, and we can never help all the people that actually truly need help. It's true, man. And I think it's, I mean, in my opinion, it's, it's the transparency aspect of it and not being, I've always been an advocate. Like when I sit down and like, you know, work with somebody, like when I was building a book of business, you know, I'm not exactly client facing now, but I think they're, I mean, people, like advisors, we should be the most comfortable talking about money. If, if we're holding our out and saying like, if we're holding ourselves out and saying, hey, we help you with money, we help you think about money, you know, contextualize money, grow wealth, build wealth, spend it. Like we should be, 
the utmost comfortable with the conversation about money and fees and whatnot. I think a lot of the times advisors, like ironically, even though they're advisors and like I just said, talking to people about money, they make it a little bit weird when it comes to like their value proposition and like whatever they charge. I think if it was, if you just leaned into it, be like, yeah, I help people you know, build their financial plans. I charge a 1% fee and this is what I do. And if you agree with that, I'd love to work with you. If you don't, that's okay. I think people get tripped up when they try to just like maybe dance around it or, or try to, or, or then also consumers come into it definitely with a preconceived notion, maybe a little bit of fear, a little bit of misunderstanding. But like you said, I, I think it the onus should be on the advisor to put that at ease pretty early on in the conversation and, and not be afraid of the conversation, but but lean into it. Yeah, I remember when the DOL stuff kind of like first came out, and this was probably like six years ago now, it all, all kinds of blend together. And I was like, I'm going to be the most transparent advisor on earth. And I'm going to, as part of my presentation, like right at the beginning, I'm going to share this like great chart and talk through all the ways that advisors get paid and all of the fees that clients potentially pay. And man, like I was on it. Like it was an awesome it was an awesome like five to seven minutes. Like I just, I crushed it. I knew it was good. It was so confusing for a client right. that none of, none of them could make a decision. You know what I mean? Like I, I um, too much information. It, it's just so much information, but I, I agree like with you, you know, Hey, this is how we work. We charge an asset based fee of 1.15% on the first $2 million that we manage we think in a very conflicted world, this is the best bad choice that we can make on how we work together. We have an incentive to grow, you know, your million dollars to $2 million. Mm-hmm. And does it feel good when your million dollars grows to 500,000? Is it perfect? No, there are conflicts of interest along the way. We do our best to disclose them. And if that's a good fit, that's fine. If not, there's a myriad of other wonderful, well-trained people to help them out. It's right, man. I mean, it, it, it's right. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, I think it, there is some recognition that our industry, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was, and even back into the 80s of like selling stocks over the phone, like some people still have the remnants of that uh, stereotype of of being sold something. Um, and I get, you know, like I, said, I think it's on us to to educate the client base, you're, you know, be transparent with people and walk people through their decisions and not, and not lean away from it. Um, and certainly not do anything, you know, bait and switch or shady. Um, are you, are you optimistic about the industry? Do you feel like we're headed in the right direction? Are we, I don't know what the ultimate end goal is for the industry, but I mean, it, like anything, it continues to evolve and, and regulations, uh, for better, for worse. Uh, but are you are you generally optimistic about where we're headed as you know stewards of financial planning? I am. I, I think it's a wonderful profession. I think it's an incredible, incredibly noble profession. I think that by and large, we're doing really good work. And I just think the complexity of tax code, the complexity of people's own financial journey is never going to eliminate the need for, you know, human financial advice. Um, you know, my, going back to my grandfather, he gave me some really good advice. He said, you know, if, if you understand how money works, you know, you'll, you'll always probably be able to have a job. You should be able to take care of your family, but most importantly, you'll have an opportunity to help people. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you really know how money works, there's always going to be an opportunity to help people 
regardless of how the industry changes and evolves over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I like that. It's good, good, good advice from your grandfather. Um, what do you, um, when you sit down with somebody and I've seen kind of like your LinkedIn, your headline is like a, a one page plan. What's the important of, and that is kind of fueled. It seems to be like your, your LinkedIn in terms of the educational content and the visualization. What about that have you find, you know, do people enjoy or what are the aha moments maybe that you've kind of had with clients when, when they look at something and maybe is it a way of simplifying it or boiling down what exactly we're after and how did you kind of arrive at that concept of, of, of presenting the information like that? Yeah. So back in 2012, I was still in the bank world at the time. And um, at that time, you know, the bank that I was at was probably ahead of its time when it came to financial planning, they had a very large retainer client. It was $50,000 a year. And um, at some point, the kind of wealth advisor gave me the plan and be like, hey, here's the plan, update it, put it in the new notes, whatever. So I'm just a young guy presenting, going through it. And I was like, you know, hey, this guy's never implemented anything that we've ever said. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy's like, yeah, but he really likes just getting the plan and he thinks it's good. So like, just don't do anything to upset that. We just, we really need a retainer fee. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I sit down, I'm going through it with him. And I said, Hey, um, if you don't mind me asking, I've noticed that you've actually never implemented any of the suggestions that we've, we've put into, uh, that we put into the document. Um, any reason why he's like, honestly, he's like, it all sounds good while I'm here, but the moment I get home, I completely forget like what I'm supposed to do. You know, this was the old like leather bound book that reeks of rich mahogany. It's the 300 pound, you know, deal. And I said, well, what if I just put in like an executive summary that was on one page of just like the next steps that you need to take between now and the next time we meet? It's like, oh, he's like, that would be incredible. How much more would that cost? You know, it's like at at that moment that this is an incredibly uh, smart person. Yeah you know, invested for decades, um, book educated, and it was overwhelming for him. So if you talk about the top of the ultra high net worth space, that it was overwhelming to receive the big, thick financial plan that was presented in that traditional way for so long, it hit me like the only thing that really matters is to get people to implement those, implement some changes. And the one page plan gave us that mechanism. And the thing that we've learned is when clients see a lot, they do a little, Mm. when clients see a little, they do a lot. Mm. So I could give someone 15 to do's and they're never going to do it, but I could break those 15 action items into three action items and do that over a sequence of five meetings. And now within a year, they've accomplished those 15 action items that they would have otherwise never done on their own. So to me, the big difference in the one-page plan is not the deliverable, not the deliverable, not the simplification of the advice, which is important. It's just breaking it up into small enough consumable pieces that they'll actually take action and get to the next step. So that's been the difference maker for us. I know there's ways to make it look nicer. That could be multiple pages. It'd be a little cleaner, deliverable. It looks a little sexier, a little more colors. But at the end of the day, it's just like the next steps, man. Just just right. plugging along, getting a little bit further ahead than you were today. 
Yeah. I mean, wow. That's that, that one line you had there was what, giving them a little so they do a lot. That's that sums it up perfectly. It's true. I mean, I think about it like I'm trying to get back into working out. If I met with a fitness instructor and they gave me like a whole big binder of every different body part, biceps, this back, I would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm, like, I'm not even going to start. Like, that's just like right. it's insurmountable. I can't do that. But if they're just like, hey, man, just wake up in the morning. The first thing you do is do, you know, 50 jumping jacks and 10, 10 push ups and talk to me in a month. I'd be like, oh, geez, that's actually, let's do that. That's easy. I right. think maybe we just, I, the industry likes, I mean, we like to flex our knowledge. We all have these fancy degrees and this. I think maybe some of that is just we over, we don't want to over report and over prescribe and over recommend at the beginning. And that, that in itself, we have to recognize the like the emotional toll that that would take on somebody who's not used to seeing numbers. Like if you're a, you know, if you're a, successful history professor at a college and you've done a good job of of saving but your world is deep in researching you know ancient egypt like looking at an excel sheet with a bunch of percentages that might be a little bit nerve-wracking and to us maybe we don't factor that in enough like that emotional human side of it. i know like i know you know like carl richards and dr daniel crosby i mean they you know the behavioral side of finance you know, when it comes to investing and whatnot, but also the emotional side of financial planning. I mean, some people, we, we all carry different emotions into the meeting, right? Like imagine if somebody had a, you know, God forbid, like a financially abusive parent or something like that. Imagine how they're going to feel so much more differently than somebody who didn't have that. And if we don't, if we can't maybe tap into that, then we're, we're missing each other, right? We're, we're, we're on different lanes and, you know, yeah. You got to meet people where you're at, you know, where they're at, you know, going back to your fitness example, it's been a while since you've worked out and they said, Hey, Cooper got great news for you. We're going to start off with some deadlifts. We got the bar loaded at 565. You're going to feel great. You're, you're not ready for that. No, it'd probably kill me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I will say the one thing that the industry has done a really poor job on is the idea of diversification. Right. If I said, you know, Cooper, what you need to do, and this is not a recommendation for all compliance people listening, <laughs> what you really need to do is just own an S&P 500 index fund, invest systematically until you get 250000 Like, that's what you need to do. Well, the investment world would poo-poo that and say that's not a diversified portfolio. You can't put everything into a single ETF. But if I come back and said, you know, Hey, Cooper, I got great news. I'm going to put you into this uh, managed portfolio. It has 26 different ETFs and mutual funds in it. We have one for large value, one for large blend, one for large growth. We, we do this for domestic stocks. We had to do this for international. We do this for emerging markets. We have real estate. We have alternatives in here, right? We have just over uh, diversified that portfolio out of any potential returns, especially when you take into account, you know, considerations of fees. So the, the whole way, you know, the industry is kind of designed has made it hard for advisors to deliver simplified advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, that is spot on. And do you think, like, I mean, not to throw crypto into that mix, but is this generation of investors, like, do you think that maybe will help innovate at all in terms of like, like when it comes to like where things are like custodian and held and, and funds. And like, I think th the only thing that I think of the crypto industry, a few different thoughts, but I think of it as a little bit like almost like forcing the industry in a way to maybe 
simplify in, in maybe less product offering by maybe, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of like, at least okay, it feels like now people are more empowered than ever young people, it seems like like they want to be at least knowing what they own and maybe understanding a little bit more, have a little bit more control of it. Um, maybe that maybe that helps eliminate some of the bloated like nine hundred different ETFs and whatnot, or or not. I mean, I, or like, where, where do you do you are you optimistic at all about like how that problem I guess would be solved or fixed or alleviated anyway? Yeah, like. Um... I may not have a direct answer as it relates to crypto, but I think the concept is um, people want planning and they don't want to be judged. And the things that people invest in because of, you know, different technologies and the rise of uh, crypto and NFTs and the ability to trade, you know, basketball and baseball cards and mm -hmm. uh uh, art on a, on a micro level. I mean, there's all sorts of new and easy ways to invest today in different asset classes that go beyond stocks and bonds. So I think as an industry, we have to find a way to capture that and provide real planning around those things other than just say like, hey, here's our managed portfolio that the firm recommends. But I, yeah. I just don't think that's going to be enough because I do think there is a wave of new, of, of new people coming into the market who are interested in investing in different things other than stocks, bonds, real estate, and they still need planning that goes along with that. Right. You, you said it a lot better than I think I was trying to get it out, but yeah, like if you, yeah, like, I mean, can our industry be nimble enough to, to still work with those clients from a planning perspective? Like if you bought, like I think fine wine was one of the best asset returns over the last couple of years. And I mean, if you bought a Rolex three or four years ago, you, you probably, it's probably worth more than what you paid for, even though, you know, that might be a luxury purchase, but if you, you know, if you're worth two, $3 million and you bought a, a $15,000 Rolex five years ago, or even, four, you know, two, three years ago, it might be, you know, it might be 30% more than what it is. That That's a good investment. That's kind of a little bit diversification. And it's not saying that someone's just getting their stuff together, go out and, you know, buy, buy expensive things. But that is completely, you know, our industry is not in general set up to, I guess, incorporate that into an overall plan. And I guess that's the difference between selling products, financial instruments, investment, you know, products, if you will, versus selling the planning ability and working with somebody who is in the advice business, maybe not so much in the, like, I sell this, you know, apples and oranges business. Yeah, definitely. I, I do think the industry is nimble. I do think there's a huge um, push that it's okay just to charge planning fees or it's okay to charge planning and AUM fees, right? I think you can kind of like break things apart, put them together and reassemble based upon what somebody needs. You know, when I have clients that talk to me about their basketball card collection or their starting lineup collection, like, I think that is super cool. Like, I, mm -hmm. I love watching basketball. And if someone's talking to me about, you know, their Steph Curry 2009 top tops Chrome rookie car, that's a PSA nine. And they view that as part of their long-term investment portfolio. Like, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. Like I'm, I'm right there with you. This is super cool. Like I'm, I'm digging this. Um, so I, I think one thing that's changing is like, it's okay to really enjoy your investments, right? You never want to fall in love with your investments because your investments will never love you back. But like, it's okay to enjoy the process and the journey. You don't have to just put your money into a 
you know, a, a, a faceless, emotionless index fund. Right. And not that you can't have both, but it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think the integration of, of really combining all of these different elements, you know, I think will happen sooner rather than later. And I'm excited about that. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, anybody under 30, I think they have a vastly different view of building wealth and money. And like you said, like what they invest in it, they want maybe a more, you know, not to make it seem like, oh, they just want to have fun, but they want to be a little bit more connected to what they spend money on, what, the, what they buy. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, this is a course of generalization, but people that are, you know, over 50 that have worked, you know, kind of traditional jobs, save into a 401k, odds are it's like you're probably going to leverage a 401k, some form of a, an IRA, maybe a pension if those still exist. If you, if you happen to get in a pension, maybe you're a federal government worker. And that's probably, you know, that's generally your retirement. Like you, you save up the nest egg and you, you hope to grow it enough to where you can, you know, have a burn rate that is, uh, doesn't exceed how much you need to pull out of it. But I don't know if that's the same. It's, I mean, as, an, as a young person myself, I don't necessarily even view my life like that. I, I don't think of in terms of like, I just got to make it to 65 and then I'm done. Like, I don't, I don't think like that at all. I, I think of like, what do I, what do I like spend time doing? How can I accumulate different cash flow things to me through maybe it's a business investments, a corporate job or something. Um, I, I think the industry will have to evolve with that because I, I mean, the baby boomers, again, maybe, maybe they're on a path that's pretty, pretty predictable in terms of how they're going to treat retirement. But if you're going to be in the advice business for the next 20, 30 years, which I, you know, I anticipate doing, maybe you see yourself in, in the same way. Like I tend to think that the clients are maybe going to, view even retirement as a concept just differently than than a previous generation kind of views it where it used to be you work a job you have a pension you retire and quite honestly the, the kind of the dark side of social security is they kind of anticipated you flopping dead, dead by 60 but now now we live easily to 80 90 years old and that's kind of put that whole i guess uh aspect of planning on its head it's like wow people are living potentially 30 years after they quit making money like how can how can they afford to do that like how can how can they plan accordingly to make that happen yeah i mean a, a couple of thoughts you know people that are in their 50s 50s today by and large other than for federal employees and teachers and that'll be really the first generation that kind of goes to and through retirement without a pension right so, yeah, I, I think that is certainly interesting and then for people younger than that, they're certainly not going to stay in a job that they hate for 20 or 30 years for the promise of a pension. Mm -mm. Those, those days are done. Um, and pensions are not coming back. Um, so I, I think you, with younger people, I'm, I'm 40. I think people my age are focused more on like job flexibility and having experiences today. So people aren't going to wait till 65 to have fun. They're going to build in more of those experiences and things into their everyday life i feel like then you know maybe people of previous generations who would really go without to save to get to be able to retire at a certain age like 60 65 whatever the case is then they're gonna do all their traveling for as long as they can until they slow down um yeah so i think you'll see some definitely some definite paradigm shifts just in how this younger generation really lives and experiences life yeah i th I, I think as an advisor it's our job to be like acutely aware of that nuance certainly generationally what's important because i mean even just the the idea of all of your assets being you know put into a, a tax-free bucket in terms of a 401k like if i had to 
if I had to guess where tax rates are going, I, I would probably say they're going to increase, right? I don't know what the future is, but I mean, they're historically low right now. And we kind of have a government that is running on a, basically running on a, a credit system. Uh, if I had to predict where tax rates are going, I'd say they're going to go higher. And I'd be, if I'm only building a pre-tax 401k nest egg that I don't really, I can't spend, maybe it's I hope it's projected out to be $2.8 million by the time I retire. But if tax rates are 50%, well, then I have half of that money. Like, so the way you, you know, advise definitely should be based on everybody's individual situation. Of course, that's like literally the law. But I also think the nuance of culture shifting uh, is a big deal and advisors being willing to have that conversation of like, what's important to you is travel is, is this important is you know is this not important or expenses or, or luxury items your thing or you know you want to live in a tiny house and all you need is forty thousand a year um maybe you don't need you know you don't need a five million dollar nest egg um you know maybe you have a, a business that pays you so i i guess it's just for me i i what i love most about the planning industry is sitting down with somebody and and not trying to pre-prescribe the the fundamentals and like force them upon them to that that model of like work you know work earn this retire at 65 live for 10 years pass away like i, I don't want to i don't want to come into that with that assumption because their life might be vastly 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 different yeah absolutely we always we use the uh, the phrase that your dreams determine your plan and your plan determines your portfolio mm. right so like you're not going in in with any preconceived notions, you're literally just trying to hear about what their dreams, goals, objectives are like, you know, what are they wanting to get out of life? You know, what is the purpose of money for them? I, I do think one thing I completely agree, but maybe on the direction of, of tax rates and saving in a pre-tax 401k, but I think going back to like Carl Richards, Dr. Daniel Crosby, behavior is so important. And why do people save so much money in their 401k? It's because it's automated. They don't have to think about right. it, right? Will there be a generation, because it hasn't happened yet, is there going to be a generation that has the discipline to save outside of a 401k? Mm -hmm. Do they have the discipline to see the paycheck hit their bank account and then turn around and do an automated $250 a month, $1,000 a month purchase into a, you know, a brokerage account so they have some taxable money that they can access you know, pre-59 and a half to go with some tax deferred and, and, and tax free money. So I think that the new wave of financial advisors, a lot of it's going to be behavioral. Right. You know, the 401k works because it's automated, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. You get a match, it's great, it's going to work. You know, but can you take those same principles and concepts and do that with people in, you know, non qualified investments? Yeah. It works sometimes. It does. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, the, the automation of it and, and setting it up to where, because yeah, if you're, if you're banking on just speaking in of human nature of you're just kind of free willing doing things, you know, it, I would say generally that's not going to work out. I mean, if we just look, if we just look to what people either surveys, independent surveys, whatnot, people try to do it without some sort of automation or plan and you just try to shoot from the, the hip doesn't work out most of the time for most people. Um, so certainly a degree of, of automation um, is in there or it's critical to the, to the planning process. Um, I mean, and that, it's, I guess simple, it's simple, but not easy. Right. You know, everything we're talking about is simple things that people could do, but can you stick with it when, you know, things get tight, right? Do you have the discipline to cut back on expenses from time to time? Um, 
And I think that's, that's the big rub on the non-qualified account. Is it truly like, you know, a shadow long-term investment account, or is it just become a piggy bank whenever something comes up? Right. You know, I think that's the difference of like, you got to tell all your money where to go, why we have emergency funds, why we need to set money aside for major purchases. And then when we invest money, the goal is that that is money that is there for long-term. Hopefully you could build that nest egg up into a point where, you know, maybe you could use that to do experiences. Maybe you take the dividends and you take the kids to Disney once a year, you take the dividends and, you know, you, you take a, a family trip or whatever the case might be, get, get that built up to a point where you have enough powder that you can do meaningful things with that money. It's true, man. I mean, and back to, I think like a little bit of the social security aspect of it in the pension kind of conversation of retirement planning. And if you can just zoom out and look at like, you know, zoom out way, like I like to, I read a lot of Ray Dalio, the hedge fund uh, manager and one of his books, he went back literally like 600 years and like study these societies of of the rising and falling of power. I'm not quite that talented enough to do it. But if, I, if we zoom out 300 years ago, I've used this analogy before where I think more people, you know, back pre-industrial revolution, people just had trades and you just you just bartered your way through life and you kind of looked after yourself. There wasn't some like societal, you know, safety net for you to fall into. You just, you had to earn, you know, money and provide for your family. And you had a trade and that was it. Industrial revolution, we all go into, you know, factories, corporations that kind of bleeds into, you know, like company sponsored plans and pensions and whatnot. A lot of that onus got shifted away from you. Like, oh, I don't have to like the social security and the 401k, it's automated. I don't have to do that as much anymore. But now pensions are essentially gone. Uh, social security, who knows what the future of that in, we're talking in 40, 30, you know, 40, 50 years from now. And now it almost in a weird way is reverted back to more individualistic. Okay, I have to be more in charge of, of what I do. And that can be a, a tremendous blessing because it's flexibility. Um, it doesn't mean you lose, uh, if anything, you gain the opportunity to put your money and your effort and your wealth into the things you want, but it's not as like prepared and done for you. Like maybe it was for a past generation. Um, yeah. And for the first time since the industrial industrial revolution, you know, the, on the onus is on you, right? You get it done. Right. And if you don't feel confident that you have the skills, the time, the resources to do that, the best possible thing for the vast majority of Americans is to find a trusted financial planner that they can do it with. Mm -hmm. That is, that is going to give you the best chance to chart that journey and have somebody who can come along beside you as your Sherpa to make sure that not only do you get to the top of the mountain, but you come down that mountain safely as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think it's exciting that it is on us to make those changes, right? We're not dependent solely upon uh, a company or a government to fund social security and, and pension. Love it. Nick, what my last question, um, and I've appreciated your time here with here on Coffee with Connections is, um, what do you uh, what are you optimistic about? I always like to ask that and I'll, I'll leave it open-ended. It doesn't have to be in the industry, but what do you, what wakes you up? Like, why do you, why do you work hard? Why do you, why do you keep grinding? Like, what do you, what, what's uh, on the horizon for you personally or professionally or just in general? Yeah, um, there is a scene in the movie, The Guardian, uh, with Ashton Kutcher, his character, uh, his name was Fish, I believe. And Kevin Costner was like the old savvy Yoda-like veteran. <laughs> and um, 
they were Coast Guard rescue swimmers. And there was a, a scene when they asked Kevin Costner's character, like, you know, what's your number? And he, he says some low number, like 22. And um, they said, you know, out of all this, all this time of all the, all these legends and rumors of how great you are, you only save 22 people. He's like, no, I, I only count the ones I couldn't save. <laughs> and they went on to like, well, how do you determine who lives and who dies? He said, well, I swim as long as I can. I swim as hard as I can for as long as I can. And the sea takes the rest. And um, I think what motivates me is just to help as many people as I can for as long as I can. And the sea or the other advisors will take the rest. Um, I'll never be able to help all the people that I want to help. I'll never be able to help all the people um, uh, that I would like to, but I'm going to try. Uh, we'll, we'll put, we'll put the right uh, resources and infrastructure in place to try to do that. But, you know, if there is a, a need for me to be in this industry to try to help people, I want to be there to, to fill that need, to fill that void. Love it. And Kevin, Kevin Costner is perfect for that. What, what, a, what a, I'm just, I've been, I've been on a Yellowstone binge. I just envisioned him saying that in a movie and that they got so me <laughs> yeah, my favorite movie of all time is uh, um, For Love of the Game when he plays mm -hmm. the role of Billy Chapel. Mm -hmm. you know, throws his no-hitter uh, in his last game at, uh, at Yankee Stadium. It's a pretty cool movie, but yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. I love it. Nick, thank you, man. Thank for, thanks for uh, for what you do. I like, always like to thank people on behalf of the industry as if I have some elected position, but but thank yeah. you for what you do because I, you know, as an advisor, I learn from it. I see it. It helps me better understand, you know, how I navigate and just, or just like having the community of advisors that, like you said early on to set the tone that there's so many people to help America truly has a retirement. You could call it even like a, a silent crisis in terms of retirement planning. I mean, there's desperate need for advice and proper financial planning. So there's, there's certainly enough people for us to help. So I, I, if anything, COVID, the pandemic, you know, remote life, I think has created a newfound community amongst advisors that if we treat it right, we can all learn and grow and help 10 times as many people. And you're someone who is certainly doing that. So I appreciate you coming on Coffee with Connections, ma'am. Cooper, I appreciate it. Wish you the best in uh, the coming years.